The following message was recorded at Bethlehem Baptist Church in Minneapolis, Minnesota. More information can be found online at Bethlehem.Church. Let's pray together. So, Father, we come now asking for your help as your children to have ears that hear and eyes that see. So come by your spirit, open our eyes to see Christ, to want to walk in his ways and obey his commands for the sake of your glory. I pray all this in Jesus' name, amen. Well, welcome to, to worship with us, whether you're at, you're at home or you're here. We're starting to get used to this drill of being in separate places as a family, hopefully not for too long. And this, this passage of scripture, this book, has just felt timely one week after another. Not like I need all of you to get this stuff, but I need to hear this stuff. And I don't mind if you guys get it too. Um, because Peter's talking to us in this cultural moment, and in the cultural moment he was in with, with persecution on the rise, with trouble on the horizon, about how in the midst of that we live as a new people. So this is the last passage in this section from chapter 2 verse 11 to chapter 4 verse 11. And what Peter has done is walk through how to relate to all sorts of ugliness around us, and really more importantly all the ugliness inside of us that comes out when all this stuff happens around us. And what he's called us to is the gospel. He's called us to let the gospel set us free from our own sin and set our hope on Jesus and to let the gospel kind of reorient our hope as exiles who are not yet home but have great hope because we know our sure inheritance in the presence of the king. I mean, he has beat this drum over and over again for us in this section. As our hearts are reoriented and our steady hope is fixed, we've said we keep ourselves from assimilating, just giving in, from avoiding, just withdrawing from the culture, or from getting aggressive, like we need to always fight those around us. And instead, we engage with humility and courage, seeking to fill the places the Lord has placed us with the beauty of Jesus. It's the vision Peter has for us. Why has he spent so long in this section? Why beat this drum over and over again? Well, if you're a kid at home right now, so I'm talking to you kids, there are things that later on with your siblings in life you will make fun of that your parents say over and over and over again to you, right? You, you probably know the phrases that they say. Why do they do that? Why do they keep saying the same things? Well, it's because they want you to have true joy. It's because they want you to avoid danger. They're trying to help you. And that's what Peter is doing for us. But what he's guarding us from is probably surprising if we've been paying attention. He's not mainly as like a, a spiritual father trying to guard us from harm or 
persecution. He's not mainly trying to guard them from that, like strategies to avoid persecution, strategies to avoid suffering. He's trying to guard them from being so in love with the world, so in love with comfort, so in love with just getting all they want whenever they want it, that when the suffering comes, they walk away from Jesus or worse, the glory of Christ is trampled on by those who believe in his name as they interact with the world in anger and frustration instead of the love of Christ. Peter knows that all of us have a self-protecting, self-serving tendency. He knows that we all like to be comfortable, right? This is not new. There's never been a time in history where people like or get excited about people misunderstanding them or maligning them. Like sometimes we talk about our current day like, oh, this is the hardest time or this is the newest thing. Like there's nothing new under the sun. It's never been fun or exciting for people to misunderstand you or malign you. There's never been a time where people didn't want to be happy and healthy and comfortable. We all long for a perfect paradise. It's built into our hearts. Right? And so, and so if we don't know Jesus... And if we don't know the gospel and of eternity to come, if we don't know that our full joy can only be found in God, then we will necessarily feel the need to try and recreate that here on earth. That's why children fight over toys. That's why adults get so nervous about our retirement funds. Right? We're, we're, we're all seeking a paradise in this world, a comfort in this world that's built into our hearts. But when we're not focused on Jesus, we just seek it in all these other places. So what happens when we seek in another place is we'll pin our hopes on our rights, we'll pin our hopes on our jobs, we'll pin our hopes on our families, we'll pin our hopes on the right leaders getting elected if we're fortunate enough to live in a place where that happens peacefully. I mean, this is what every commercial you'll see is after. This is what the world is discipling you into, that you need your little slice of heaven on earth. And Peter is calling Christians to what is permanent instead of what is passing. He wants them to have a sure hope. That's what this section has been about. How do we shine forth the beauty of Jesus as those born again to a living hope as a people who know and act like they are not yet home? And what Peter has been doing as we move into point one here, prayer in the last days, is he's been talking to the church mainly about how to relate to the world outside of them in a way that shows the beauty of Jesus. How to relate to the, to the people that are going to disagree with them and malign them and, and curse them. And now what he's going to do in this final passage in this section is bring it in-house. He's going to zero in on what should be going on within the blood-bought family of God, and he's going to again set this context for us, the same theme. So look at the beginning of verse 7. He says, The end of all things is at hand. So, what does he mean? How should we interpret that, being that we've made it a few years beyond Peter writing this? Well, when Jesus was on the earth, the disciples couldn't believe that he was going to die because they thought. He was there to establish the kingdom and overthrow Rome. They read the Old Testament. They saw this Messiah was going to come and bring peace and perfection for them. And he thought, well, certainly that's what's happening now. Well, they didn't understand that it was only part 
one, that Jesus came to the earth to pay for sins, and then in the sheer mercy of God, he filled the church with the Holy Spirit so they could proclaim his name. More could be saved because of God's patience, and then he would return the same way to bring about a new heavens and new earth, free of all sin and full of his presence. So I want to read you two New Testament passages that help us see that we're living in the end of all things. We're living between his first coming and his second coming. So first, Acts 1, verses 8 to 11. Jesus is talking to his disciples and he says, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. And you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. When he said these things, as they were looking on, he was lifted up. And a cloud took him out of their sight. And while they were gazing into heaven as he went, behold, two men stood by them in white robes and said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into heaven? This Jesus who was taken up from you into heaven will come in the same way as you saw him go into heaven. And as you read the book of Acts, you see this expectation of his return. Or in Hebrews 1, in parts of verses 1 to 3, it says, Long ago at many times and in many ways God spoke to our fathers by the prophets, but in these last days he has spoken to us by his Son. And after making purifications for sin, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. So this is the category, the New Testament category, the end of all things, the last days. This is what we're living in. All of Israel looked forward to the coming of the Messiah until he came. And now we live in the last days, the days between the first coming of Jesus, his life, his death, his resurrection, and the second coming of Christ when he returns in power to make all things right. And if you've been tracking with Peter, you can see how this fits his theme. Right, church, you're living in a crucial time. Church, you're living in the last days. We don't know when he'll return, but we know he will. We know he paid for our sins and he rose again in power and that we're waiting with patience and expectation for his return to make all things new. Church, we don't hope in things in this life to make all things new. We hope in Jesus. That's his point here. We're living in the last days. Church, don't you get it? Don't you get the time you're in? Don't you get the urgency? Don't you get, he's given you time, church, to reach the nations, to preach the gospel. Don't be so concerned with your circumstances. Be concerned with Christ and the mission of Christ. So what would he call them to in light of living in the last days? And I just have to confess, in light of the pandemic and in light of everything I see all the time, the first time I read uh, the rest of verse 7, I just laughed out loud because of what he calls them to, it's so fitting, it's amazing how the Bible never gets irrelevant. Here's what he says, therefore, because we're living in this urgent time, be self-controlled, be sober-minded for the sake of your prayers. I don't think that these are two different commands, but rather a way to emphasize a state of being, putting two terms together to say this is how you should be. It's like kids when your parents say it's time to settle down and be calm, right? Those are the same things. We just say it because we're emphasizing it to you. We really want you to settle down and be calm. And we've seen this word before, this word for sober-minded in chapter 1, verse 13, so we don't have to guess what he means. He says, therefore, 
Chapter 1, verse 13, preparing your minds for action and being sober-minded, set your hope fully on the grace that we brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. This is a call in the last days to remember the hope we have when Jesus will return. That's what Peter's doing here again. Remember, Jesus is coming back. Church, don't give in to hopelessness. Don't give in to fear. Don't give in to all of the sin in your life that seems so tempting when you know your Savior is coming soon. It is amazing, isn't it, that one of the main verbs in the New Testament is remember. This is call back to Jesus. We're so forgetful. We're so easily distracted. We're so taken off the path. We need to remember Jesus. Peter is saying, remember, get ready, be sober-minded, set your hope on Jesus. When we know that we have people coming over for dinner soon, we take steps to get ready. They're coming. We need to get ready. But so often, we forget Jesus is coming. Just forget. We just don't live like he's coming back. We just live like this is all we're living for. And so we don't set our minds on that hope and we don't take steps to live as if we're ready. I mean, do our lives look like a people getting ready to meet their king? A people helping the world get ready to meet this king? Does your life look like that? Is you, are you ready for that? Are you living like this is all it is? So this is all it is, we're most to be pitied. And in light of these last days, He wants their hope fixed on the final victory of Christ. Why? And he simply said, for the sake of their prayers. He wants them to be a praying people. Are we a praying people? Do you spend as much, just be honest, right? God, God knows, he sees. Do you spend as much time really in concentrated prayer to your king as you do researching articles, frantically scrolling Facebook, having conversations with people, but how worried you are. I mean, I mean, do we do this? Are we sober-minded? How is your prayer life? You're fixed on Jesus. He wants them to be a people on their knees in expectation of the return of their Savior and therefore praying for the presence and power of God to come and advance his kingdom, to guard their hearts and to help them spread his beauty. And he's saying you can't do that if you're not sober-minded. You can't do that with distracted minds. I'm reading a book with my wife very slowly, called The Ruthless Elimination of Hurry. And distraction is not new. Peter's writing about it quite a long time ago. But we're living in an age where technology has made it a chronic pandemic, you could say. We're consumed with stories and facts at an alarming rate, and it's worse in an election year. We're distracted and anxious and filled with wandering minds about an uncertain future. And Peter is writing to a church in that same place. Uncertain future. And in the midst of that cultural unrest, what does he call them to? Prayer. 
This is Christianity 101. Prayer with a mind fixed on Jesus. Prayer with an expectation of his return. Prayer with our hope set on our eternal inheritance. Prayer. Why? Because he knows when we, we talk to God, when we ask for his help, we begin to remember that he's here. And he's with us. And these things are real. What if... That's what God has been meaning to do in his church during this pandemic. Creating a prayerful people. One of the things. How are you doing? Are you at rest in Jesus your Savior and fervent in prayer? Or are you distracted and on a fervent mission to save the world with your new knowledge? I'm just going to say something just to check my heart. I have to check my heart on these things. At this point... No one is posting anything original or mind-blowing. They're just not. I haven't seen anything in a long time that's just, I really needed to see that. So, why are we running to it? Why are you running to it? Why are you spending so much time on it? Could it be our hope is misplaced and our prayer life is missing? Step one of Peter's call to the church, if they're going to love each other, is to live prayerfully in light of living in the last days as exiles who are not yet home. Step one to loving your brother or sister, according to Peter in this passage, is be sober-minded and pray. It's Christianity 101, and yet I think we can all feel the tug of other places vying for our attention. Point number two, the priority of love. Let's read the first part of verse 8. Above all, keep loving one another earnestly. And again, I just had to stop here with his, 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 his words. I love preaching because I have to read these things slowly. And I just thought, above all? <laughs> above all. It's a big thing to say. You're living in the last days. The culture is against you. You have no lasting hope here, but you have eternal hope in Jesus. So, so Peter, what should we do? What do we do? Should we win the culture back? Should we fight for our rights? What do we do? Peter says, well, above all, above all, love one another steadfastly. This word has this idea of never giving up, never going away. I'm in it with you. I won't leave you kind of love. He says, keep being relentless in your love for one another in the family of God and that will show the world an otherworldly community of love. Sometimes evangelism isn't separate from loving each other, right? How will the world know we're disciples of Jesus? By how we love one another. So I just had to ask myself this week and I'm going to ask you to ask yourself, is this your above all? This is what's finding first place in your heart right now. Is this your highest priority as you walk through unsettling times? We need to re-understand the church, not as a buffet line set up for our choosing and our comfort, but as an otherworldly, supernatural family of God meant to love each other earnestly and lay down our lives for each other sacrificially. If it's not that, it's just another club. If it's not that, it's just another thing we like to do. If 
but it's not that just another weekly activity. And what I want to do quickly from this passage is to try to engage you, to draw you out and to draw you into the beautiful picture that this can be when it happens that's meant to be a display to the world of the love of Christ. What a privilege that we can display the love of Christ to be drawn into the greatest love story ever and get to be actors in it. The church is supposed to be a movie or a play on display for the world of the forgiveness of Christ, the welcome of Christ, and the servanthood of Christ. So look first at the forgiveness of Christ in verse 8. Second half, love one another earnestly because love covers a multitude of sins. The word here just means to conceal, to to cover it up. Our love for one another covers a multitude of sins. This can't mean that we can pay for each other's sins. Can't mean that we can sacrifice ourselves for each other's sins for ultimate forgiveness. But what it does mean is that we can model a kind of love that forgives. Like Christ forgave. We can show the love of Christ brightly when we forgive each other, especially when we live in a cancel culture. Right, so our culture that we live in says, you get something wrong, you hurt me, you offend me, you don't agree with me, you make a mistake and I'm done. And I'm gonna tell everyone else I'm done with you as well. But in the blood-bought family, we remember we're blood-bought. Like that's the only reason we're part of the family. It's not because we did something. It's not because we're better. We're more spiritually sensitive or something. We're blood bought and so we're amazed that we're forgiven and therefore we're transformed to be like Jesus to extend forgiveness. In this family, it should be you get something wrong, you hurt me, you offend me, you make a mistake and guess what? I'm still here. I'm with you. I'll never leave you or forsake you. I'll be with you always, even to the end of the age. Like Jesus. Not perfectly, but really. We show the love of Christ when we don't keep a record of wrongs or try to get even or cancel them, but instead are eager for our fellowship not to be broken, but to extend forgiveness. And this is hard And it's a process. Like when someone has really hurt you or really beat you up, forgiveness is not a one-time decision. It's going to be over and over again in your heart saying, Lord, help me forgive them like I've been forgiven. Like there are people in my life from a decade ago almost where a thought comes up or their name gets mentioned randomly and I just got to go to work in my heart. Lord, help I'm angry. I didn't think I was angry anymore. Help me forgive them again. I don't want broken fellowship. I don't want a messed up relationship. Help me. Which leads second to the welcome of Christ. Verse 9. Show hospitality to one another without grumbling. The word for hospitality means welcoming strangers. And here we're called to do this with one another. I think Peter is just saying what he's been saying all along. You're all exiles and strangers in this land. Welcome each other in the name of Christ. We're all strangers. We should all feel strange in this place we're living in. And he says, and do it without grumbling. So why would you grumble? 
maybe the inconvenience of it. That's mainly the way we talk about it in our culture. Well, it's hard to get the home ready and it's hard to, and that's true. Sometimes it's hard, sometimes it's tiring to get a house ready for hospitality. But, but here, in the context, I think it's, it's getting at maybe there's some sin that they've sinned against you or some frustration or some bitterness that is keeping your heart at a distance from them. I think that's why he started with love covering sin. The goal is to get your heart to a place where you're eager to welcome other believers into your life. That's what hospitality is. It's not actually a Pinterest picture. Hospitality as a Christian is I see you and you're welcome in my life. Sometimes it looks like going to a park together. Sometimes it looks like coming into your home. Sometimes it looks like hanging out longer outside here because someone needs prayer. That's what hospitality is. I see you and you're welcome in my life. Christ loved us while we were yet sinners. And so the question for us is, is there anyone in this church family right now that your heart is not welcoming towards but instead grumbles against? Think about it right now. People just came to your mind, right? So don't, don't live in that shame. Just bring it to Jesus. Like, I have people like this that my heart wants to distance itself from instead of welcome into my life because it's hard, because sin is real. I'm a sinner. You're all sinners. It's going to be messy and broken. The point isn't a perfect people. The point is a repentant people, walking in repentance, walking in love together. So who are the people right now that your heart just goes, I'm just going to walk that way because then I can miss them. We have a chance, an opportunity to display the love of Christ when we show the welcome of Christ from hearts that love our brothers and sisters and have let love cover sin. We don't let sins against us break fellowship. Third, the servanthood of Christ. Verse 10, as each has received a gift, use it to serve one another as good stewards of God's varied grace. Christ was the suffering servant who came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. And here we are called to follow him in laying down our rights, counting others as more significant than ourselves and serving one another in love. It is more blessed to give than to receive. And again, what an opportunity we have right now, right? We've got restrictions here. We've got all sorts of goofy stuff here. I know it's frustrating. You know it's frustrating. We don't like it. But maybe this is the moment where the church rises up and says, you know what, we can't hang out in the same way we want to, but you can come over to my house. We can't hang out in the same way that you want to, but we can meet at a park. We can't hang out in the same way after church we want to, but we can do this. Like this is the moment if you're going, well, what is the church going to do to make this happen? I would say, you're the church. Serve each other. Show hospitality. Love each other. Especially with those people that right now you just are frustrated with. Invite them over and say, man, I've been frustrated. You know why. I know why. But I love you. Jesus is coming back. Let's not let this be a thing until then. This is the moment to be the church. Like, I'm thrilled to be the church in this moment. Not scared. Not fearful. I'm not Nervous? I'm, I'm thrilled that we get to be this kind of otherworldly co- community because of Jesus. The church is meant to display the love of Christ above all 
in these last days to show the world an otherworldly community of forgiveness, welcome, and servanthood. And in a world that is full of cancel culture, polarization, and self-serving agendas to get whatever we want as soon as we can, you can imagine how a church could shine the beauty of the love of Christ if we simply followed these three suggestions from Peter. It would be astonishing what the world would see. Point number three, the power of love. These last two will be short, but they're important to see. If you're sitting there right now like I was this week while I'm studying and you're realizing kind of your misplaced hope, your anemic prayer life, your lack of love, you might say, well, what is our hope that we can change and be this kind of Christ-radiating community? What is our hope? Well, our hope is that we're born again to a living hope and God will empower us to become who we already are. So look at verse 10. As each has received a gift, use it to serve one another as good stewards of God's varied grace, which means you have gifts. God has given you gifts. God has already given you a way that you can serve your brothers and sisters. He's given you gifts. They're from him. They're a display of his varied grace, his, his multicolored grace. In other words, there's a diversity of grace and gifts given to the family of God. He gives exactly the gifts to the exact people that need them in every place to accomplish his purpose. That's what God's doing. This grace is from God. The variation is from God. The gifts are from God. He is the source of our gifts and our grace to love. Verse 11 emphasizes it again. Whoever serves as one who serves by the strength that God supplies. So how do we serve and love and welcome and forgive and use our gifts in the strength God supplies? Do you not think that God will not empower you in your repentance to use your gifts for his glory? You're not too far gone. You haven't sinned too much. You're not useless. Repentance is right here. This is the beauty of the gospel. Like it really is finished. And so we simply say, Lord, I've been angry. I've been unwelcoming. I've been distant in my heart. I've been cold. I've been using the church as a buffet line. I've been engaging in cancel culture. I've been all these things. But by your grace, I know there's forgiveness. Help me serve in the strength that you supply. And I think that's why he started with prayer. What is prayer besides asking God for the help that he promises to do this? Finally, point number four, the purpose of love. You remember, I hope, I've said it, I think every sermon, so I hope you remember, in chapter two, verses 11 to 12, that opened the section that it was a call to fight our own sin and then display the beauty of Jesus with deeds that point to him. Why were we to do it? So that others may see our good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. And this, this section ends with that same purpose. Look at verse 11. Whoever speaks is one who speaks oracles of God. Whoever serves is one who serves by the strength that God supplies. In order that in everything God may be glorified through Jesus Christ. To him belong glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. So we've, we've seen that we speak and serve by the empowerment of God. All this hoping and praying and loving as exiles only happens by the power and presence of God among us by his spirit to make us a holy nation and a royal priesthood to proclaim his excellencies. 
And if we grow in this, and if we do it better, and if we make a difference in this life for the sake of Christ, all the glory goes exactly where it belongs. I, I love that word, to him belongs the glory. It's his, belongs to him. We're not giving him anything he doesn't have. It belongs to him, to our God who has saved us and is sanctifying us by the blood of Jesus and the power of the Holy Spirit. This is the end of all things, the glory of God. This is the purpose of the church, giving it to him because it belongs to him. He is empowering us to loosen our grip on the things of this world and live for his glory, to give back to him what already belongs to him. Which leads us to the table, which is where we get to come today together. At the beginning, we talked about a discipleship of comfort in this world. The world is discipling you <laughs> to be comfortable, to, to get what's yours, to have your little slice of heaven on earth, to, to cancel people that frustrate you. But love is not comfortable. It's not. Forgiveness is definitely not comfortable. True, heartfelt welcome is not comfortable. Servanthood is not comfortable. Jesus even says it will cost us. He says, like, count the cost before you do this thing. It's going to be hard sometimes. But as people of the kingdom of God, living between the first and second coming of the king, God is working to empower us to become a community of self-giving love. And that is why the communion table helps us follow in the footsteps of Jesus as disciples of the cross and not comfort. Right? Every, every time we do this, we're face to face with what he's done. We're face to face with a, a bloody cross that reminds us of the discipleship of Christ and not comfort. There's a reason this historically has been a weekly meal in the church. We need this reminder. We need this. As you hear the words preached, we need that. As we sing these words, we need that. And as we take communion, we need this visible picture of the blood and body of Christ poured out and broken for us. That's why it's been weekly for all of church history until recently. So what is communion? And I love that we landed on communion in this passage. What is communion? It's a family meal of love where we fellowship together with Jesus and his body, the church, where we confess our sins and remember that he came once and he'll come again. And the Bible teaches us that we're called in this moment to look at our own hearts for sin, examine yourself rightly, but then to examine the body. That means to think about, are there broken relationships within the body? Is there any lack of forgiveness? Is there any lack of welcome? It's meant to remind us we are living in the last days as a blood-bought family of the king gathering around his table with great expectation that he's coming again soon. So in this moment, even today, it's not just, man, is there anything this way? It's, is there anything this way? Is there stuff in this body? Is there broken relationships? Their lack of welcome. Am I distancing my heart from people? We have an opportunity in these unsettling, angry times to be a settled, hopeful, thankful, self-giving community of love that can only be explained if Jesus is real and the Holy Spirit is working. So as we approach the table, it brings us into fellowship with Christ, 
and each other as a fresh application of his body broken for us and his blood poured out for us that makes us a family and we look forward together to the day when he'll come again. As we come to the table, right, it helps us as a family to fix our eyes on Jesus, to prayerfully ask for his help, to break the power of sin, to move towards each other in the world with radical love that will bring him glory. We come to remember our hope is not in this life but in the one to come. As we come to the table, your mind should go to the wedding supper of the Lamb. Man, what's that going to be like? Every tribe and tongue and nation and people gathered around the wedding supper of the Lamb. No more of this division. No more of this distraction. No more of this divisiveness, but only love. We come to declare that only Jesus is worthy of all of our lives and of every breath and therefore we long to declare together by our obedience and our love that he is worthy. We long at the table to display the beauty of our king among ourselves so that others would see our beautiful deeds and agree with us that our king is beautiful and give him the glory that he deserves. So let's pray together. So Father, we are about to come to your table to fellowship with you and with one another. And my prayer is that this would be a moment of refining, that where there is sin remaining in our lives, that we would come to you, confess it, repent of it, and ask for your help. That where we've had distance in our hearts from other believers, where there's been unforgiveness, where love has not covered a multitude of sins, but we've kept a record of wrongs, we've been angry and bitter, Lord, oh, that we confess it and make it a point today or soon to go and make things right. The church is not a buffet line, it's a family. And we long to live in such a way that we display the love of Christ and his forgiveness and his welcome and his servanthood and we need your help and that's why now we come to the table to ask for it. Pray all this in Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for listening to this message from Bethlehem Baptist Church in Minneapolis, Minnesota. Feel free to make copies of this message to give to others. But please do not charge for these copies or alter their content in any way without written permission from Bethlehem Baptist Church. For more information, we invite you to visit us online at Bethlehem.Church or write us at 720 13th Avenue South, Minneapolis, Minnesota, 55415. Bethlehem Baptist Church spreading a passion for the supremacy of God in all things, for the joy of all peoples, through Jesus Christ.